Welcome those of you watching online. Welcome Chicago cohort. How's everyone doing today? Amen, Happy amen. Monday. Isn't God good? We're going to welcome up our pastor and visionary leader, and he's going to be continuing in the book of Romans, starting chapter 12. Let's do it. Joe Wairostek. Amen. God is good. We bless the Lord. You keep forgetting your sword up there, sir. Don't do that to yourself. Don't go swordless into the world. Amen. How many feel Jesus right now? Praise God. Love you. Mm. <laughs> I won't do that, but I want to. I got good news and bad news. The good news is Jesus is Lord, and he loves you, and he will always love you. The bad news is this is our last chapel. The good news after the good news and bad news is I'll keep doing the chapels until it's finished during my podcast. So check, the, check those out. Cool? All right. Let's go to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It's been a great year. I hope that you've enjoyed studying the scriptures and going through the Bible in this time we've had together. I'm going to try to knock out two chapters. They're both pretty short, so I think we can do it. Let's try to do Romans 12 and 13, verse 1 of chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as, living, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So this is where the book of Romans gets now into practical living. We've been in the deep theology pretty much all the way since chapter 1. And so now he's going to teach us how to live it out. And the first part that he talks about here is offer your bodies as living sacrifice. Does that make sense now, having understood what the body is capable of? Your flesh is capable of sin. It desires sin. It has appetites for sin. Just like you have earthly appetites, the mind can desire moral appetites, and those are immoral according to God. Now, originally in the Garden of Eden, your body's appetites were in line with your soul and the purpose of God. But now since the fall, your flesh carnal appetites are against the will of God. So you are now to make your body a living sacrifice. So it doesn't die once and then that's it. It's living sacrifice. It's continually alive as you're sacrificing it. And you can come up with a lot of uh, illustrations here, funny preaching illustrations, because if you take something alive and try to sacrifice it, what's it going to do? It's going to start squirming and, and getting all over the place. If you take that, that lamb and and you try to sacrifice it, it's going to start going everywhere. And then eventually the blood's going to go out and it's going to die. But if it doesn't die and you keep stabbing it and stabbing it and it's still there, you know, it's going to become like a bloody mess, okay? And so the idea is here, we continually count the flesh as dead. We continually sacrifice it. It will die a thousand deaths until it finally dies. And don't think that's strange. It's normal to crucify your flesh over and over and over again, to count it as dead in the past tense, and then when it rises up, you count it as dead again, and you sacrifice it again. I wish I could tell you that once you did it, you did it once, it would be over. You would never have to wrestle with your flesh, but that's not true. You will have to wrestle with it. It's alive, and until it dies, it is an it that has life, and it's alive. And as we've learned before in Galatians, it has passions and desires. Let's just go there. Uh, Galatians chapter 5, I believe it's 23, but let's go there and take a look at what exact verse it is. So the flesh, it has passions and desires. Galatians chapter 5, verse 24 and 25, but verse 24 primarily. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Sometimes people try to argue with me and they say, well, how can your flesh be an it and then have passions and desires? Don't passions and desires only come from things like persons? Well, that's not necessarily true. You can have an it that has passions and desires. And the example that I always use is your it stomach has a desire to eat. We call it that and use intelligence to it, but that doesn't mean like it's a separate little person there with the head, I mean with the brain that says, I want to eat, but it has a desire to be fed. It desires to be fed. Your lungs desire to breathe. Well, just like they desire those 
um, physical things, there are things morally that your brain will desire. And I thought that I spent a good amount of time on this, but if you ever have any confusion on it, we can talk about it you know, more at the end of this class. There's time for Q&A. That your brain is capable of moral desires. So we look at an animal's brain, it's capable of desires that can fall into the category of moral, but we don't consider it moral because they don't know right from wrong. But we say like the actions could be like considered moral because the animal will desire sex, and sex for us is moral. So how much more so can your brain, your complex brain, desire the action of sex? If an animal's brain can desire the action of sex, your sexual organs desire fulfillment. And then the same thing is with the other parts of your body. They desire attention. And so it's up to you whether or not you give into those desires. And the Bible says you do it once at salvation. You count it crucified, and, and that's Galatians 5.25. And then as you go through Christianity and its desires resurface again, you, you sacrifice it, you crucify it again as it is living. Does everybody understand that? Maybe I'll just stop right here and take questions. Does anybody have any questions about how your flesh is an it and it has passions and desires? And scroll back to the notes, please. And Romans says you are to count that body, flesh and body, same thing, soma in the Greek, sarx in the Greek for flesh, body, flesh, uh, same thing, count it as a living sacrifice. Any questions? Because that is the Bible's uh, the Bible says that is your true and proper worship. I hope that clarifies to you what Christian living is like. Christian living, worshiping God, which we know worship just means serve. It doesn't just mean sing a song. It, re- it literally means serve. Um, go to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, and then right-click on the word worship, and then they can see it in our notes, please. Uh, see it on the Bible program, rather. When we worship something, we serve that something. And so in the Bible, worship and serve are synonymous. Uh, Go to the word worship. It looks like you've uh, touched on the word urge. Yeah, go down there to the word worship. Right-click on it. There you go. Thank you. When we see the word worship, literally, latiriae, oh, man, help me say this, Jesus. Latiriae. Latiriae? Latiriae? Latria, oh, thank you. There's my bilingual hermana helping her pastor. Gracias. One more time. What is that word? Latria. Okay, I love that. Latria. What is the first word that it gives for the definition there? Service. So let's uh, come off that highlight, please, and just put in the word service there. It says, offer up your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper service. It's the same thing, and what you sing towards and what you adore in that way is what you serve, and what you serve is what you should sing about, and it will be in your heart. That's why people sing about money. They sing about drugs. They sing about whatever, you know, and the idea here is the Bible is saying this is what Christianity looks like. It looks like you being new in your spiritual soul, perfect and holy as God is perfect and holy, righteous, cleansed from all sins. It looks like you living that way with a body that is living and you're sacrificing it. Your living sacrifice is the body subjected to the will of God. Now, even Jesus said it was like this when he said the flesh is what? Weak, but the spirit is willing. He said the spirit is willing, but the flesh is what? Weak. So the flesh, even in Jesus, though it was perfect, unlike ours, though Jesus' flesh was perfect, it still was weak because it had not yet been glorified. Until flesh is glorified, even if it was perfect, it will be weak. So offer your body as a living sacrifice to God. This is your true and proper worship. What do we do? What, what does that look like? Paul's now going to share it in verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now let's just start here at the end. Does God want you to live a good life? Yes or no? Does God want you to live a life that pleases him? Yes or no? 
Does God want you to live a perfect life, yes or no? Yes, so why would we ever take out the word perfect from this list right here? It doesn't make any sense. It's just giving people an excuse to sin. That's all it is. Let's just, let's just reduce it down to what it is, my brother, on that post you had. It's just giving people an excuse to sin. Because you and I are to find out what his good, pleasing, and perfect will is and live it out. We are not supposed to use the excuse that sin is stronger than us. We are not supposed to use the excuse that, whoopsie, I don't know any better. We are not supposed to use the excuse and say, well, the devil's my slave master and I can't get free from him. All of that has been taken care of in the chapters prior to this. It is now time to be conformed to Jesus, transformed like Jesus, and renewed like Jesus. That's the pattern, conforming, transforming, and renewing. So we're not conforming to the pattern of the world. What's the opposite of that? Conforming to the pattern of Jesus. We are being transformed, not, in from, not from sinner to sinner to sinner, but from sinner to saint, to glorified saint, to levels of glory, to upgrades of glory. And we're being made new continually in the things of God. We're not going from sinner to saint to sinner to saint. We're going from glory to glory to glory. And the way I look at it is the conforming to the pattern of this world includes transforming and renewing. So the pattern includes transforming and renewing. I think transformation has to do with how you live. I think renewing has to do with how you think. That's just the way I put it together. Because it says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So the transformation is be transformed in how you live by changing how you think. Does that make sense? And I believe that's all called the pattern. So don't conform to the pattern of the world. Don't conform to the way they do things. Conform to the patterns of Jesus. And when you're, uh, you're conformed to the pattern of Jesus, you will be transformed in how you act because you're being renewed on how you think. So the battle for your actions and your pattern are going to be won in the battlefield, on the battlefield of the mind. So as your mind goes is how your actions and how your pattern is going to go. Because really what is a pattern? A pattern is just a habit of actions. And, and those actions can be external in behavior and internal in thinking. And so the Bible says he wants you to have a different habit, a different pattern of acting and thinking. But the changing of the acting doesn't come from you trying to do behavior modification. You don't try to stop smoking by willpowering your way to stop smoking. Maybe some can do that, but that's not really transforming you. You'll just be an addict of another thing. You know, transformation of behavior like a Buddhist monk doesn't make him any more righteous than the serial killer. He's just changing different sins and different patterns of his sin. The only way you can get out of the pattern of being a sinner is by your mind being changed. So take, for example, the Buddhist monk. He may have gotten himself away from all of these things that, you know, we would say are the big sins, you know, like drunkenness and adultery and those things. But he is... Um, uh, he is excelling now even more in the sin of self-righteousness, selfish ambition. So let's say the sinner, no matter what sins he sins, is always 100% a sinner. Now, the 100% may be divided up in other ways in his pattern. So this one sinner, let's take um, the person who's sex trafficking. They're like uh, 100% a sinner, and that, and that sin is divided up like 70% sex trafficking and abusing women. And then it's like 5% vulgar language, 5% this, 5% that. It adds up to 100% sin, sinner, right? And so now the one that's not sex trafficking in Asia, they're at the top of the Tibetan mountain, and they think they're better than that person down there. Well, if they're not born again, their pattern is still 100% sinner, but now their, their sin, instead of it being like 70% sex trafficking or whatever, it's 70% selfish ambition. And then it's the other things. And so it's like it doesn't matter where those things go on the, uh, the, the scales. The idea is they're still 100% in the pattern of this world. 
And then now the Bible says, according to their deeds of wickedness, they will be judged and they will suffer differently. So I think the one who is in, in their eternal judgment, I do think the sex trafficking person will suffer differently than this other person over here because it's, it's compounded to the hurt that it's doing to others, so forth and so on, because I believe there's grades of punishment. I believe there's grades of glory and reward. But this is not talking about that. This is just simply saying there's a pattern of the world. So that's why I want you to think about it. Unless you are born again and transformed and renewed in your mind, there is no way out of this pattern. And I think another great example would be there's no way out of the matrix unless someone unplugs you from the matrix. You can't unplug yourself from the matrix. And the idea of the matrix, if you haven't seen that movie, is that they are born by robots. They're breeded. Humans are breeded like kind of like in labs. And they're born connected to the mainframe of this computer. So this robot, these robots have made computers and virtual worlds for them to live in to make them useful to them. And the way they're useful to them is their body energy is like a battery for them. So humans are now batteries for robots. And in that crazy movie, they're hooked into a make-believe world because they have to be sustained and grow and live as they get more energy from them. They have to find a way to keep them happy like that so they don't want to escape all the time. So they just tap into the brain and make them think they're in a make-believe world. And so I say all that to say, you can't get out of the pattern of the matrix unless somebody unplugs you. Get the Revy here. Get the Revy. So everything you do in the matrix that you think is different or amazing or bad or good, it doesn't matter. It is still in the matrix. Every single thing. So you could be like the richest person in the world in the, in the matrix, but you're still just in the matrix. You could be the poorest person, but you're still in the matrix. You could be the smartest person and, and think you've invented everything like Steve Jobs, but you are still just in the matrix. So think about it like this. Do not let the ungodly draw you into their world to make you think they're accomplishing something because everything they are doing is still in the pattern of this world. They are still in the matrix. So it doesn't matter what Bill Gates does and all the philanthropy he does and all those things. It is still in the matrix. He's still there. Because while all of that is happening in the movie of the matrix, the body is a slave to the robots. So you might think in the matrix, oh, here I am, I'm free, I'm not a slave to the robot, I can do this and I can do that. And all of that may be real to your experience, but it's not the actual reality. The reality is you're still in a, in a slave position with the thing in your brain. Is everybody tracking with me? So like Oprah may say, look at how amazing I'm doing, I'm doing all of this. And the devil is just one step back going, you're still my slave. You are still in my pattern. You are here in the pattern. And the only way you can get out of that pattern is by being born again, receiving the gospel, as Romans has been talking about, being freed from the slave master of the devil, and now you offer your body as a living sacrifice, and you have a new pattern, the pattern of Christ. You're transformed in your behavior, not by your own doing, but by what God is doing in you, by the renewing of your mind. And then... You can test and approve what is God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. That's your life. Amen? Amen. Let's keep going. For it is by, excuse me, for by the grace giving, given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Now do you know why I believe faith is a gift? Even if Ephesians, it puts it in a different Greek um, uh, gender, and sometimes people try to say, well, Ephesians could possibly mean that th this is the gift of God is only uh, salvation and grace. It doesn't include faith. I include it as faith being a gift to us, I believe, in the Armenian principle of pervenient grace, excuse me, where you get graced, you get freed in your will, faith is given. See, because of scriptures like this, it says God distributes faith. Now, you can get greater faith in your obedience to the faith you've been given, 
And so there's great faith and there's little faith. If you don't grow the faith that you have, in other words, you'll lose it. So you've got to use it or you'll lose it. Um, just like the parable of the sower, when the seed goes down, that's the word, and everybody has the chance to have faith, but those who don't have it, uh, the devil comes and takes it, and those who have little of it, the, the, the sun comes out and burns it, and those who, who kind of in, intermingle it with weeds get it choked out eventually. So faith is a choice, but I do believe it's a gift. It's a gift, just like grace is a gift. It's a resistible gift, but it's a gift. And so Paul is saying, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, because we're all coming into this graced and faithed and blessed all by Jesus the same way. And then from that point on, it's by our decision what we want to do with it. And so he's saying like, yeah, you've been graced with this. You've been faith with this. And here's what it looks like in the context of the church. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. Now you notice that, accordance with your faith. Why did it get personal there? Because you determine how much more faith you're wanting to operate in by what God has already given you. I like the one example that the faith preacher said, we're all given a skeleton and muscles, but we all don't look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. What's the difference? He worked out what God gave him. Right? He didn't give himself those, that body, the actual skeletal system, the nerves, the bones, all that. No, but he worked what his mama gave him. Amen? He worked it out. And so that's the same thing with you. Your heavenly father gave you faith. Now, do you have great faith in the gifts that he's given you, or do you have little faith? That's going to determine on what you do with what he's already given you. So it says, if your gift, so like God gives you a gift, is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. So grow that gift as you grow in faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Thank you. Let's scroll to the chart that I have there for you, please. And so if you go through the teachings of Paul, you'll basically find three different categories of gifts that he goes through in three different sections of the Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 11, he talks about the spiritual gifts. Then in Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, he talks about the service gifts. And then in Romans 12, 6 through 8, which we just read, he talks about the working gifts. Now, he mentions some of the spiritual gifts in this list as well as a service gift. So he, he put a couple of these two categories in here, so I didn't repeat them. I just picked out the individual ones and kept those, uh, the unique ones, and kept those in their categories. All of this is by the grace of God. And the reason I divide it up by Father, Son, and Spirit is because that's what it does in Corinthians. It says that the Father gives gifts, the Son gives gifts, and the Holy Spirit gives gifts. That's really beautiful. And so I kind of see that pattern in the Scripture. All of these we have access to by the Holy Spirit. And he gives them to us to use according to his will. And then it is distributed or rather effective according to our faith. So he gives them to us along with the faith to use it. So he gives us the car with the gas in it and the keys. And he says, it's up to you what you do with it. If you don't keep growing in, in, in your gift and those kinds of things, if you don't keep ex um, experiencing them and practicing them, you're going to lose them. Now, technically, we're going to learn right here that the gifts of God are without reproach. He doesn't technically take them away. But what I mean by use it or lose it is you you look at the parable where it says he gave them the talents and the one who, who buried the one, he took it away and gave to others. At the end of your life, it gets taken away and given to others in that sense. But what I say, if you don't use it, you lose it. I mean, you don't get the effectiveness out of it. It's lying dormant. Does everybody get what I mean by that? Okay, amen. Let's keep going. I believe uh, the gifts are without reproach. Wasn't that last week? Did we read that, Jared? Yeah, Romans eleven twenty nine says, for God's gifts and his callings are irrevocable, and his call are irrevocable. So until the day you die, you'll have the potential to use these, and it's up to you whether or not you will grow in them. Okay, now, verse 9. Love must be sincere. 
Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. So notice just the sections we've been through. He's talking about offering our bodies as living sacrifices, following a new pattern. And then he says that we ought not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. God's given us all gifts and faith to use them. And then now he starts to say live by love. And part of loving is hating. You can't love everything. Because if you love everything, then love doesn't mean anything. Right? If I love abortion and I love children, that, that's meaningless. What does that mean? If I say I love rape and I love marital sex, what does that mean? I mean, you can't love contradicting things. So by definition, if you love something, you have to hate something. And, and that doesn't mean you hate the person necessarily, though God will judge people for what they have done. I believe God is giving mercy to those right now who are doing what he hates, but he still loves the world. But remember, on Judgment Day, God is not crying. He's joyfully punishing those who have been his enemies, okay? So just remember that. He's crushing them as the wine press, the Bible says. He is squirting out 200 million people's blood like a person steps on grapes and makes wine. The Bible says that the flow of the blood will be as high as a horse's head for over 100 miles that day, and then he'll be mocking them when he's coming down and judging them. He'll be, he'll be like how we've seen in our favorite movies when the good guy's beating up the bad guy, and he's punching them, and he's making fun of them, and he's stepping on his head and you know all those things are going on I mean that's that's what's going to happen okay so let's be real about that but this is where I, I love to show people that in the New Testament specifically we're shown that he does not hate people just because of their sin he still loves his enemies and he's and he's doing good to them even though they're his enemies because here it says love must be sincere so that would mean we would love everybody there's no reason to stop loving those who are not following God but what we do is we hate what is evil. So I love. this is where people ask me, well, where do you find that statement, uh, love the sin or hate the sin? A statement like this would help me. I hate what's evil, but I cling to what is good. Every good and perfect gift has come from our Father above, the Bible says, the Father of lights. Where did mankind come from, the devil or God? God. So I love that. I love mankind. Mankind came from good. God. God is good. God, our, mankind came from our good God. So I love mankind. I cling to them. I try to help them. But do I love their behavior if it's evil? No, I hate their behavior. And that's sincere love. Sincere love hates. Everybody get that? Sincere love hates evil. Say, the, say it fully. Sincere love hates evil. Amen. Thank you. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Now that could be taken very you know, very um, immediate to their context, to the church. But there's no qualifier there. So I would still say, be devoted to everybody, the Muslim, the Hindu, in love. Honor one another. Even honor the Hindu above yourself. Let them have the first seat on the bus. Let them have the last cookie at the, in the break room. Honor people. Love people. Serve people. Verse 11, and he's just going to keep preaching at us. Just a bunch of one-liner one points here, okay? Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. So people who tell you, oh, Jackie, I used to be like you when I first got saved, and now I'm, like, really more mature. I don't get as excited for Jesus, you know, and worship as, as you do. You'll get like me one day. No, no, no. You never have to backslide like them. You can stay on fire for all the days of your life. I'm 20 years into this thing, and I'm still on fire for Jesus. Amen. I do so much for the Lord, that's not a part of my job description as a pastor. I go above and beyond because I love it. Like nobody makes me do the podcast I did before I came to chapel today. I did that because I love Jesus. No one's making me take out the gospel truck on Mondays. I would get the same check, as it were, whether I went out today or I didn't. And that's what a lot of people think, you know. It's like, oh, you know, pastors just do it for the money and all that. Not a good pastor, not a good leader. Good elders, good deacons, they do it for God, man. It's like a privilege that I get paid for this because I would do it if I wasn't getting paid, amen? Amen. So never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. And we learned all about that yesterday. Serve the Lord, what a privilege. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, Faithful in prayer. Man, there's a great t-shirt idea for you, right? It's a little bit long, but you could just see like how you can emphasize that. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. That's a great one-liner. That's a great one-liner. Joyful in hope. We don't lose hope 
when we see things go wrong in this world. We're patient in our afflictions. And how many of you know we hate affliction? Nobody likes affliction. Even Jesus said, if there's another way, Father, let it go that way. I don't want to do this. Nobody's flesh wants to be afflicted. And then be faithful in prayer. When people ask me, like, what's the secret of success? Dude, a prayer life. A prayer life. It's all by the grace of God, of course, but like what is the command that I follow that brings the most benefit? It's the prayer life. The prayer life relieves me of of stress and doubts and fears. It's like releasing the valve, you know, on a pressure cooker. All that pressure can come out. Uh, In prayer, I am able to release endorphins and, uh, you know, whatever goes on in my mind happens, you know, in joy and worshiping and giving God everything, even, even crying is good for you. All of that, man, when, when you're in prayer in the presence of the Lord, you will find all that you need. So be faithful in prayer. Now verse 13, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. What a great way to live as Christians. You are to be generous. You're to be hospitable. And that should be a part of our lives is that people are welcome in your house. People are welcome in your car. People are welcome at your lunch table. That should be the mark of a Christian. Verse 14, here's another great one-liner, right? Here's a great T-shirt. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. You could have a picture of like a hater, like yelling at you, you know, and be like, I love my haters or something, you know. You know, I bless and I do not curse. There's something there that gives us uh, the peace in broken relationships, when they are angry at us, that we should have a love for them that goes beyond their provoking. Now, that doesn't mean we won't defend ourselves, but some of you saw that, that interaction I had at Logan Square. There was a peace that came over me, even though I was still aggressive with him, not backing down, but I wasn't going to turn it into a worldly affair unless he went there first. And my wife was watching it, and she was like, oh, he just wanted you to hit him. It almost like turned into that. Like a lot of you guys thought I was going to get hit, and I agree, it looks like that. But as I watched it a few more times, the way he was in my face and poking at me and blowing smoke, he really wanted me to start that fight. And then I would look bad, right? But I looked good by God's grace, and he looked bad because I kept my peace. Bless them and do not curse them. Now here's another good one. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Now there is a time when we're to tell the one mourning, rejoice. And there's the time when we're to tell the one rejoicing to mourn. When would we do that? Well, If someone is rejoicing and they're living carnal, we're to call them to mourn. The Bible says, don't laugh now, mourn now. It's time to mourn over your sin. When would we want to tell somebody who's mourning to rejoice? When they're in condemnation and guilt and despair, we bring them to Isaiah 61 and say, take off the sackcloth and put on the garments of praise. But as a general rule, you are to be sympathetic to people. That's what it's teaching here. When they are getting their promotions and God is giving them good grades and all of these things, the rewards of their labor, you're to rejoice with them. And when people have lost loved ones or people are going through hard times, you mourn with them. Be sympathetic. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. And so uh, in their day, there was a lot of classism, you know, were you a servant or were you a master? Were you a person that had a lot of money or were you poor? Were you a Roman citizen or are you one of the illegal immigrants or one of the uh, <coughs> excuse me, enslaved people? Uh, <coughs> excuse me, my brother, would you give me some water, please? The 57 Chevy's running low on oil this morning. Thank you very much. Uh, need some help. So we can apply this to our day. Uh, Live in harmony with one another, which means don't fight in the church. Don't be disagreeable with each other. Never be the one who says, I don't want to work it out. And you guys know of situations that have happened just since you guys have been around. Every single one of them that have not been good always end with them saying, I don't want to work it out. And it's us saying, thank you, sir. It's us saying, can you take off that lid for me because it's going to be hard. Thank you. Would you just put it back on? I just don't want to knock it over. Thank you. Let's give it up for Jared, man. He's being amazing. <clears throat> Bringing the man of God water and taking off the cap. Oh, man, that's humble, right? I mean, it's, it's one of those things when you're up here, it's like, what do you do, you know? You can put a straw in it and hand it to me. 
you know. I appreciate you doing that. And I would do that for him any day. So the idea isn't that we classify ourselves into different groups. We live in harmony with each other. And then we never, we never become proud and break off things what God is trying to heal and restore. Like we don't say to each other, well, you're not worth my time. I, you know, I know how you are. I don't want to have any more meetings with you. I don't want to talk about this anymore. No, we never do that. As long as two people are willing to work it through, everything can be worked out. If there is going to be a parting, it's not going to be over this then. Because listen, if we agree to this, we can work it out. I actually wrote something in my Bible early on in ministry when I would realize broken relationships in the church were common and broken relationships were with people in, in the church was always happening. I just was, you know, just like you guys, you know, you, you see people come in and out, in and out. I mean, it's just normal. It's, it's going to be that way till you meet Jesus. And I just always feel sorry for people when they go through it when they're not used to it because they, they have to go through that kind of leaving and cleaving a lot. Like now watching my children, like, where's so-and-so, where's so-and-so? You know, it's not fun. But, it, but it's a part of the church. It was a part of Jesus' life. It's always going to be there. Paul's even naming their names when they leave, right? So we shouldn't think it's strange. But we shouldn't be the ones that are always trying to cut people off. So one of the things that God gave me, and I'll see if I can remember it here. Jared, please write it down and then... Um, uh, let me approve of it, and if you could, please, we're going to post it. If we have a disagreement relationally, we need to get a leader to help us solve it peaceably. If we cannot solve it, it's because we disagree theologically and need to part ways biblically. God gave that to me. About 14 years ago. I have it in my Bible that I keep in the, the truck, my preaching Bible. Yep. Because I just, I had to have it in a way that I could understand it. And maybe you haven't heard me say it to you, but I live it out. Because there's a reason why it's not working in the relationship. Someone's not doing this right. And then I got to move from you this way. Like if you're not doing it right this way, then I'm still going to be biblical and move away from you, but I'm going to do it a biblical way. And that doesn't mean it's always going to be the way you like it either. Because let me just tell you guys this right here. Everybody in this church is my illustration, my proverb of who does it right and who does it wrong. You should be thankful I don't name your names more often. But you will always be that in this church. And if people don't want that kind of church, then go to another kind of church. Because Paul always used his disciples as examples. Some what to, do, what to be like and others were named what not to be like. So if you don't want your stuff to be used on what not to be like, like the woman who was mentioned yesterday who was a nanny and didn't want to be a nanny and she left, then this wasn't the church for you because that's how we're going to pastor you. I'm not going to make up examples. I'm going to use exact examples in this church. And I always think to myself, well, what would happen if that woman watched it or her husband? I would hope she would get convicted, repent, and say, Pastor, thank you for loving me and still thinking about me because why would I ever do that? without intending to do good. I don't want you to think that was good. It was never good. It was never good for you to leave the church. For those who aren't following, I talked about a story yesterday because we were doing an ordination, and I said there was a woman at one time when 201 came up, our discipleship phase is called 201, the second phase, and she was told, like all the other ladies, you're going to have to volunteer in the back. And she didn't want to do it. And so her and her husband left over that disagreement. I don't want to do that. And so then I, told, I tell the story, well, guess what she did for a living? She was a nanny. And then I said, isn't that just sad? Here you have a nanny that gets paid to do it but won't do it for free for God and his people. And then I shared that we have people in this church that have their master's degrees that pay nannies to take care of their children but then when they come to church, they willingly nanny others' children. Talk about humility. You know, we got people in this church that own their own businesses, pay people to clean their businesses, but come and willingly clean this place. And yet we got teenagers that don't even have a home to live in, except on their mama's you know, paid couch or whatever, or the bedroom that their mama pays for and won't clean the house of God. And you got business owners that clean the house of God. 
See, there's a difference there, isn't it? It's called pride. That's what makes the difference. And so we are to live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited from me to everybody. Can you read it out there, please? Make sure we got it right. Now, let's, let's, let's rephrase that. I, I wish I had my Bible with me. Say the first part again, please. No, no, see, that's where you missed it. If we cannot solve our problems relationally, we need to have a leader try to solve it peaceably. Do you guys remember I said that? A leader. I remember saying the word leader. Leader's in there. Okay. Now, now, after you fix that, can you please read it to me? We cannot solve our problems relationally unless leaders solve them peaceably. Yes. If we cannot agree doctrinally, we must handle the matter individually. Yep. Yeah, didn't really get it. Where's my phone at? Get, somebody grab me my phone. I actually want to take my time and do this right. Jared, I'm not, I'm not going to require you to do that or ask you anymore. Just someone grab me my phone, please. It's back there. Let me take my time and give it to you right. I wish I could just hit rewind on the tape I just made right here. Matter of fact, if anybody's listening to us online, did you hear it? If you can, can you please put it up? Because otherwise it's just going to take a little bit more time right now. <laughs> That's okay. I'm going to make sure I do this right. If we have a problem relationally, we need to get a leader to solve it peaceably. If we cannot Solve it, it, solve it, it is because we differ theologically and need to separate biblically. There you go. Now, Jared, I'm going to send this to you, and please post it up for us. Do you see how much that helped you guys? I mean, that came from the Lord. I hope it benefits you today. I text it to you. If we have a problem relationally, we need to get a leader to solve it peaceably. If we cannot solve it, it is because we differ theologically, put the word differ there, and need to separate biblically. That's how life's going to be for you. That's the way it's always going to be. Anybody who does not want to do it and get reconciled, it's because they have a theological problem with you. They're theologically not right. And you can reconcile with Calvinists better than you can reconcile with somebody sitting next to you in this church if, if they theologically understand the peace of the body. Because most of your arguments are not going to be over soteriology. Now, some churches will separate over soteriology, but I'm just talking about your friendships. You know, I, I'm not going to stop being a friend of somebody because they're a Calvinist or whatever. But most of the time, it's going to be because of something messy that's going on. And theologically, they don't know how to settle it. And a leader is going to try to help them to do that. And if they're not willing to do that, you've met your problem. Now the problem's not the problem. The original problem is not ever hardly the problem. Let's say it this way. Most of the time, the original problem is never the problem. It's always the problem solving that becomes the problem. How do you solve the problem now becomes the problem. And that's where if they differ theologically on how to settle their problems and how to be righteous and at peace with each other, that's where now you have to separate from them biblically. Can I hear an amen? Amen. So now the Bible says, do not repay evil with evil. That's good to remember. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You see, as far as it depends on you, you're reaching out. Some of the biggest mistakes that I've ever made, even the one that I talk about in the 201 book, it always ended with me coming back, doing whatever it took to make it right. I remember saying to Brother Anthony, I'll do whatever it takes to be right 
And they said, well, we're going to have you clean the toilets. And they literally asked me to clean the toilets. And they had me clean the toilets until they felt that my attitude had changed. After that time, I left when I thought I was smarter than all of them. And I remember, I remember when they told me it was over because they went to, uh, Chancellor came and talked to me one day and he said, hey, what's going on? I'm just cleaning, I said, I'm just cleaning the toilet. And he says, how's it going? And I go, man, it's going good because, you know, I'm figuring out where it gets dirty, how to clean it, where the, where the stuff's at. Like, I just made it my own. Like, it was just, I was becoming excellent at this. And I was just, it's going great. I'm doing it good. I figured it out. The stuff's over here and this is where I clean this here and, and I use this cloth here. And then just about a couple hours later, I was called into a meeting. Joe, you're done cleaning the toilets. Why? Your attitude. We saw you were right. You did it good. You had the right attitude. You see, that never bothered me because I understood they cared for me and they oversaw me. Just like when I left Belmont, the church that I used to work at, and I did some things wrong when I left there. I wanted to make it right so bad. I called him up. He would not meet with me for three years. But Brandon is a witness to it, that within days I was calling him up going, hand him the phone, hand him the phone. Because in my mind, it was like, I know I can make this right if I can just repent and do et cetera. And, and so that's when you have to realize that it doesn't, you know, doesn't always uh, count the kind of the mistakes you make. It's how you recover after those mistakes. Because I've made some big mistakes, but it's the recovery that matters. And that's why Pastor Grogan is still in my life is because he was there to help me and say, we don't leave this way. You know, do whatever it takes to make the situation right. And I was willing to do that. And that's why when I started this church, there was never a division. I didn't take anybody with me. I had such a peace that I could start because I had the blessing of my leaders and elders. And I was properly ordained and blessed and sent. I didn't go and take the microphone and went. Amen. And so there, there can be, you know, good Good decisions done wrongly. Good decisions done. It was a good decision for me to leave at that time. Actually, it was. Everybody was in agreement, including, including the pastor. But it was done wrongly. And yet God still blessed me because he saw that I was willing to repent and do whatever it takes. And when you see people leave the wrong way, they, they're not willing to do that. And I've always told you that my biggest hurt as a pastor has always been on both sides, those that have been over me not reconciling with me. That's the greatest hurt I've ever heard and felt in my life. Like, why did it take three years for him to meet with me, you know? Like, that was a deep hurt. Like, man, like, why don't we just meet? Like, it could have been so resolved. And then when people under me leave and don't want to meet and resolve. And see, the devil knows what hurts you the most, and that's what he'll have do. You know, and so you don't be discouraged because I haven't let those things discourage me. Amen. Stay faithful to God. He'll bring you faithful people. Do not repay evil with evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So I, I mean, literally, dude, I can say I have done everything. Listen, I have done everything my enemies have asked me to do to live at peace with them. Think about that. Everyone that was an authority over me, from chancellor to the church I used to work with, can say, Joe did everything I asked him to do, which was leave me alone. Stop coming around. But can they say that when they leave here? Most of the time they can't because we're still asking them to do things. We're still asking them, right? But they don't want to do things. And that happens all the time, you know? Just like the person who left over the nannying thing. It's like, we're telling them, don't leave. Don't leave over that. Pray and seek God. No, I don't care about anything else. I'm just going to go, well, okay. Well, then that's not being really at peace. I mean, you didn't say anything bad about us. We love you. But you're not doing what it's best for, for you and the church. Verse 19, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. That's real. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. So isn't that something? It's like, don't take revenge. Be nice to them. But then by being nice to them, you're actually going to mess with them. You get it? It's like you're still going to mess with them. They, they're not getting away from being messed with. So this is how you're going to mess with them. You're going to be so nice to them that it becomes like burning coals on their head. It's going to make them even more mad because you're not fighting the way they fight. You're not going about it the way they go about it. Amen. You're doing it God's way, and that bothers them. It's like, man, why are you doing it that way? Well, I'm doing it because I, I love you, and I want some coals on your head. You know, just half kid there, right? And it says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that's going to be true 
in everything that we do. In everything that we do, we know God's going to judge. We know the world's going to come to an end in, in, in fire and brimstone. But right now, we're doing it by being good. We're bringing the kingdom of God, rather, by being good. We're not doing it by fighting fire with fire. Like Jared was saying in the 201 class, if you have a fire in your kitchen and then you start another fire in your living room, those two fires aren't going to put each other out. You start a fire in your living room and, and there was one because you had one in your kitchen. Now you just have two fires. And, and the devil would love for us to always be starting fires and putting out fires, starting fires and putting out fires. That's why I live by that statement I gave you guys, because at some point I will separate biblically until they're ready to do what's theologically correct. You know, we're not going to go down the road of worldly uh, ways of handling our problems. We're not going to do lawsuits. We're not going to do all these crazy things. What we are going to do is we're going to do biblical correction, biblical theology, biblical things. And that's why the Bible says you guys are going to judge angels. Why can't you judge amongst yourselves? You should be able to, every problem literally should be able to be solved in the church. We don't even have to make a church run government. But we could solve the problems the government can't solve just by doing it on our own. Like if everybody lived outside of Metro Praise International the way Metro Praise International is done, there wouldn't be what's going on in the world today. And we wouldn't have to legislate it, you know, like everybody do this, everybody do this. We would just settle the problem because we live by the law of love. We live by the law of charity. Like, all, like just put it this way, all racism, done. All um, you know, things that have to do with, you know, oppression and people not getting hired. Uh, here in this church, everybody gets hired uh, and fired the same based on how they live out the things of God. No one is, is given any different of a way of living. I mean, a treatment based on how their color of skin is. Well, just imagine that that happens out in the world. It's not like I need to tell the Christian businessman here every single week to not be racist. If he loves his brother as himself, he will not be racist. Does everybody get that? And it's like every week, I don't have to say here, we don't rob from each other. If, every, if, if you just love your neighbor as yourself, you won't rob from each other. And that's literally what it's going to say in verse 8, that the thou shall not commit murder, thou shall not covet, and all of those things is really just fulfilling love of chapter uh, 13, which I don't have time to get into today. But really, love fulfills the law. So I didn't get very far. You know, I mean, I didn't get into 13, I should say. I did get far because I got done with 12, which is awesome. But, I, you know, I took up my time a little bit, gave you guys some more lanyap, some extra stuff. Let's uh, end in prayer, and then we'll take some questions if you guys have any and talk maybe about the summer or anything you guys have going on. Father, we thank you today. We pray that we'll continue to live for you, follow these one-liners by Paul. And basically it can be summed up as what he just said there at the end, not overcoming uh, evil with evil, but overcoming evil with good, with love, and loving people as ourselves and treating them the way we want to be treated and not being divisive in our families or in the church or on our jobs. And uh, Lord, living for you with the gifts you've given us and the faith you've given us, living the great life that you have for us, uh, sacrificing our bodies, being transformed in our behavior, renewed in our mind. May we live this out today in all that we do. And bless these students, God, as they prepare to finish up this uh, year. Bless them in their studies, with their finals. Bless them with their, their ministries and all that they're doing for you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said...